Welcome to Stories from the Park, a Heritage Park podcast. Hi, I'm Dominic Terry, Communications Manager. And I'm Kasaya Quill, Chief Curator here at Heritage Park. We are located on Treaty 7 land in southern Alberta, a place where visitors come to learn about the history of all those who have gathered here and where Indigenous people proudly share cultural traditions and tell stories about their rich heritage, history and attachment to the land. Today, we're speaking about the history of Métis people across the prairies, their place in Canadian history, and their connections to Heritage Park's historical village. Our guest is Matt Hilterman, a longtime interpreter at Heritage Park and a historian with the Métis Nation of Alberta. Hey, Matt, thanks for doing this. Yeah, no worries. I'm glad to be here. We're excited to have you. And one of the first questions we had for people who don't know, could you explain who the Métis are? So... The best way I've really heard Métis conceptualized is as a post-contact Indigenous people who emerged emerged out of the interactions and intermarriages uh, between First Nations on the Northwestern Plains and uh, fur traders who came out here during the late 18th and early 19th century. Um, Now, a few caveats. It's not necessarily anyone who's mixed not necessarily French and First Nations, and not anyone who is mixed, or even if they are half French, half Cree, is going to be Métis. Because there were specific uh, historical and political factors in the late 18th and early 19th century that led the Métis to split off from other Indigenous groups on the prairies and formulate a uh, new and distinct identity as a new people. Uh, and over time, that became more than just a political assertion. New songs, dances, stories, and even languages emerged uh, around this new people. For example, uh, Métis have two languages that are fairly distinct, Michif and Bungi, as well as unique dialects of English, French, and Cree. And so, and it's almost more efficacious to understand Métis not just as a a unified culture, but as a cultural complex that recombines in unique and internally consistent ways aspects of all parent cultures. Uh, And I say all because a lot of people boil it down to just First Nations and European, but uh, it's important to acknowledge how diverse First Nations cultures are, first of all, Um, as well as well as acknowledge not only the diversity of European antecedents, uh, because it wasn't just French and Scottish, although the majority were, but there were other elements uh, that gave rise to Métis families, including uh, Iroquois from Quebec, uh, and even occasionally including Afro-Caribbean patriarchs. Uh, But what unified most of the men that gave rise to Métis communities was their, their participation in the fur trade and their choice to remain in fur country um, after leaving the employee of the fur trade. Mm-hmm. Um, and what brought the women together was um, the role they played in bridging the um, these fur traders with their home communities, uh, but also the, um, the choice over time to leave those home communities and form new communities uh, with their families separate from the you know, their, their First Nations kin. And over generations, the children in these communities tended to intermarry. And after many generations of mixed marrying, mixed marrying, mixed, you have a new society 
that doesn't really see itself as, you know, First Nations or European. Uh, yet paradoxically, that sees itself as both native to the soil and as a British subject. So that that Métis nationalism uh, emerges really quite early in the game by the 18-teens. And the Métis people today are the people who descend from that cultural complex, that assemblage of uh, new and distinct cultural traits that emerged out of those interactions and intermarriages and new community formation during the late 18th and early 19th century. How much of that stems from the Red River settlement? Um, Red River is definitely the nucleus of that. And in the early days, um, in the sort of ethnogenesis period, you had a lot of disparate, um, I would say, proto-Métis communities that were in the process of becoming, but had not necessarily developed uh, unique identities yet. Um, the merger of the HBC and the Northwest Company in 1821 led to massive layoffs from the two companies, but it also led to diminished opportunities for freemen bands in and around HBC and Northwest Company posts. The result was that many of these freemen bands and mixed blood communities relocated from, you know, everywhere from the Peace River to Pembina uh, to the Red River Valley. Now, not all people made this trek, but enough did that their convergence on Red River after 1821 uh, really helped consolidate that idea of Métis ethnicity and nationalism in the Red River area. Red River became uh, the economic, political, and social hub of this emergent nation and nationalism. Now, of course, there were still communities further afield um, and there was an iterative relationship between the, the freemen communities that remained say in the Edmonton area on one hand and in Red River on the other. They weren't isolated from each other. They weren't solitudes. But a lot of the developments um, that would later define Métis nationalism occurred at Red River and were spread through these networks to more remote communities. Hmm. Um, so there is a poor, core periphery dynamic there. And Red River very much does serve as the core. Although I will caution that it is not the be all end all. It is impossible to understand Métis, the Métis nation and Métis nationalism without reference to Red River. So, um... One of the biggest events that I think most Western Canadians think about when it involves Métis people are the Red River and Northwest resistances. And I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit more about those events, but also how those impacted Southern Alberta. Their impact on Southern Alberta was, well, I guess we'll get to that later. Um, in response to the first part of the question, um, 1870, 1869, uh, what had been happening throughout the prairies um, was that the Métis have effectively, since 1849, been uh, more or less self-governing. After the Guillaume-Sayer trial, um, it was shown that the HBC, despite its claims to Rupert's land, could not effectively enforce its will. That is to say, it had no effective political control. And 
during the Sayer trial, you really see the development of this idea of Métis nationalism and the Métis nation as being both an indigenous society, but also having the rights of British, British subjects. And in 1869, when the um, HBC sold its claim to Rupert's Land to the Canadian government, the Métis at Red River felt that their rights, um, both as natives of the soil and as British subjects, had been violated as they'd been not been consulted in this process. Um, this led to the declaration of a new, um, of a provisional government. Uh, and it should be noted that it is entirely inappropriate to refer to 1869-1870 as a rebellion, because a rebellion implies a, an uprising against an established authority. But the Canadian state had no effective authority here at the time, nor did the HBC. Um, so it's more accurately understood as a resistance against the imposition of control rather than a rebellion against an acknowledged authority figure. Now, it wasn't perfectly unified. Certainly, historically, it's often portrayed as a much more united front than it was. Um, having said that, it's really interesting because even a lot of the Métis who were against Rael were largely in support of the resistance and the provisional government. And antagonism from the Métis community towards Rael tended to be more about his approach to Métis rights and to govern, governing than they did about the actual goal and ends. And that's important to bear in mind because the only notable opposition to the provisional government came from the Canada Party. Uh, which were mostly Anglo-Ontarian immigrants who were uh, largely associated with the Orange Order. Um, and the historiography has tended to kind of boil the resistance down to either, you know, either pro-Rail or pro-Canada party. But there was a sizable segment of Métis at Red River who were pro-provisional government, but not pro-Rail. So it's a complex history, but I think the general consensus in Red River, uh, regardless, is that there was a need to really, um, you know, enter confederation on our own terms, and that those rights, like I said, as natives of the soil and as British subjects, needed to be um, adequately treated with. Um, this resistance ultimately led to the Manitoba Act, which on paper dealt with a lot of the Métis grievances, um, and then came the 1870s, where a series of orders and council undid a lot of the aspects of the Manitoba Act. So this led to a lot of discontent uh, in Red River. And between 1870 and 1885, roughly half of the Métis population who was settled at Red River uh, left. So prior to 1870, Red River settlement uh, made up over 60% of all Métis on the prairies. For every three Métis on the prairies, roughly two lived in Red River. Um, by 1885, that number had shrunk to only about a third because of the um, large-scale migration in response to that. Um, and that's actually the biggest impact we see in Southern Alberta is the uh, shift in the center of gravity of where the Métis communities active here are coming from. Because before 1870, 
most of the Métis who were active in southern Alberta were settled at places like Lac Saint Anne, Lac La Biche, Duhamel, um, Edmonton, kind of the Edmonton settlement complex. You know that string of settlements between Lac Saint Anne and Lac La Biche, uh, more or less along the North Saskatchewan River. Uh, that was kind of where you see a lot of Métis before 1870 coming to southern Alberta from. After 1870, and especially after 1875, uh, the point of origin for Métis coming into southern Alberta really starts to shift towards Manitoba diaspora. And so you can kind of parse Métis history in southern Alberta into the pre-diaspora phase uh, and the post-diaspora phase. Um, although it is interesting to note that a lot of the Métis uh, diaspora from Manitoba didn't just resettle anywhere they, they decided to land. A lot of them actually returned to where their parents or grandparents or great-grandparents had been from uh, in the um, you know, more upland regions. So people, for example, uh, with ties to the Edmonton settlement complex, people who had left the upper Saskatchewan region in the 1820s and 30s often returned to that same place. You talk about the 1870s, of course, one of the big Canadian um, pieces of history would be the establishment of the railroad railway in 1885. Yeah. What was the population in, um, I guess, you know, in our area, in southern Alberta and Calgary, especially pre-railroad? And then how did, how did the railway affect um, Métis? Uh, movement, I guess, in Western Canada, and uh, and where did they settle? Where? So, as of eighteen eighty, so the railway wasn't completed till eighteen eighty five. You're you're right on that. It did reach Calgary by eighteen eighty three, although there were some gaps in the line. Uh, and I bring that up because the um, eighteen eighty one census for Southern Alberta was actually largely conducted in early eighteen eighty two. So. It's a reflection of Southern Alberta the year before the train showed up. And if you look at that and look at, you know, demographic data from the year after 1884, the railway and its arrival in Calgary in 1883 completely upended the demographic structure of the region. Um, so the Bow River M district can kind of be subdivided into I would say um, three main subsets, um, which are the three tributaries to the South Saskatchewan, the Red Deer, the Bow, and the uh, Old Man Belly. Uh, the Red Deer River at that time was relatively unpopulated. Um, I There's really not much that's recorded in that district. And most of what is is closer to Buffalo Lake Duhamel in the Edmonton district. Um, the Bow River has two major settlement clusters. The first is at Morleyville uh, near modern day Cochrane. And the second is effectively what's now um, the city of Calgary. Uh, so you can choose to look at just the Calgary settlement you know, in Township 24, Range 1, West of the 5th. Or you can you can include the surrounding areas. 
while it does change the absolute numbers a little bit, it actually doesn't change any of the percentages in any significant way in terms of the demography. Uh, so you can really like treat Calgary and area as a dis demographically discrete area. Uh, and then the other area is like the McLeod, Pincher Creek, Lethbridge area. Um, and most of the settlement in that on Beaver Island tends to be um, kind of between Fort McLeod and Pincher Creek, including those two. Um, little bit of stuff at Lethbridge, but it's, it's minor. Now let's get into the numbers a bit, because this is where it gets really interesting. The Belly River area, so Pincher Creek, McLeod, Lethbridge is very cosmopolitan. No group makes up a majority there. Um, the population is roughly evenly split between, I, I should point out this census did not enumerate First Nations people on reserve. So there's a huge gap in our numbers. This only includes non-Indigenous people, Métis and First Nations people living off reserve. Uh, the Belly River area was roughly split uh, between roughly half were Indigenous, uh, Métis or Blackfoot mixed bloods, while the other half were uh, either white or American of various origins. And I say that because it, people included in like the American category included not only like white American miners and whiskey traders from Montana, but also folks like, um, you know, uh, Harry or Henry Mills, who was uh, a black trader, or uh, even people like Jerry Potts, who was uh, half Blackfoot. But as far as the, uh, the census was concerned, he was Irish American. So, or Scottish American rather, but point being that there are some, some gaps in categorizing that area, but fully you get people from everywhere. You get folks there from Montana, from Edmonton, from Red River, uh, even from, um, you know, from the South, places like Virginia and the Carolinas. Uh, you also get people coming in from the West Coast uh, through the Crow's Nest Pass. That area is really eclectic and no group holds a majority. And that's really interesting um, in contrast to Calgary, which can be described as like relatively homogenous. Calgary's main uh, demographics were Métis, Mounties, and the odd gold miner who'd been up in Edmonton sometime in the 1860s. Calgary was overwhelmingly Métis roughly two-thirds. Um, the non-Métis population consisted either of Mounties, white men, usually former gold miners or fur traders, like Sam Livingston or John Glenn, who were married to Métis women, uh, or former Mounties married to Métis women. The only one who of the non-Native population who doesn't fit into one of those three boxes is Cecil Denny. That's it. Out of the whole community. But uh, truly, it really is. Um, and like to the point that there is not a single uh, white woman in Calgary in 1881. Calgary very much at that time could be understood as a Métis settlement. Um, and what's interesting to that end is that by 1884, the population's more than quintupled, but 
the demographic, like with the arrival of the railway, absolutely flips. By the time uh, the by the time Calgary incorporates it as a town in 1884, it has over 500 people, the bulk of whom are from Ontario, the USA, or the British Isles. Um, and you all you see similar phenomena to this in other um, historically Métis settlements, like Edmonton, like um, you know Prince Albert, Batoche, um, even around Capel and uh, Regina. Is that when the railway arrives, the demographics of the area change in very absolute terms. A lot of these settlements that were predominantly Métis even as late as 1881, um, are quickly outpopulated by, you know, uh, immigrants. And what's interesting is that it's not just that the railway arrives in Western Canada, it's specific to the, when the railway arrives in a specific region. So in the Edmonton area, we don't see this flip until the late 1880s, early 1890s. Note that in Edmonton, the railway arrived in 1891. In Calgary, it happens overnight in 1883. Um, so the role of the railway in restructuring Western Canada's demography really can't be overstated. That's great. So when um, so much to talk about in that area. So when we think about Heritage Park and the application of kind of that the pre-railway to the railway, we have our settlement area. Um, tell us a little bit about the way Métis history is portrayed in the settlement and where on the park we could take it into other areas. To put it bluntly, aside from a bit of signage at the Fort and Livingston House, and the work of myself and um, Isla Vivier, another Métis interpreter, in the past couple of years, that's all we've had. Um, there is not a lot of discussion of that Métis presence uh, in the Calgary area, um, or First Nations presence for that matter. Now, to be clear, I've seen a lot of archival photos of Métis settlements from the pre-rail period. And our settlement doesn't look that different from one. But the way it's curated and the way it's staffed, um, I don't think does justice to the real demographics of the area. Mm -hmm. um, again, for all the exhibits they had staffed this year, um, we only had two Métis interpreters working two days a week to tell that story. Mm -hmm. as well as a couple like, you know, side mentions in the signage. I really do think guests could be forgiven for visiting the settlement and not realizing that, you know, um, prior to the railway, the largest demographic here would have been Blackfoot, even though they weren't enumerated in 1881. Estimates put the uh, combined Blackfoot population for the time around 10,000. Uh, so that's clearly the largest group. Second largest group, well, I mean, Stony, Tsutina, Métis, all numbered in the several hundreds to a thousand. And non-Native people were really in the minority here. I mean, and one group I think is also underrepresented in the settlement is uh, Afro-Canadians. Like, there were more Black people at McLeod in 1881 than there were white women in Calgary. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and that should be borne in mind because like that's another group that you'd very, if you didn't know that going in, you'd be forgiven for not realizing. But I do think that the settlement at Heritage Park uh, does have a lot of work to do in terms of making visible to guests the fact that this area was predominantly indigenous right up until the railway arrived. Um, and that Métis were a very significant part of that demography. And it's interesting too, because some of the buildings there, like the mission, the fort, the uh, Livingston House and Barn, um, Drew Saloon, Gleeshan School, they're all built very much in the style of like Métis architecture. Cool. Um, but again, if you don't know that that's what a Métis settlement might look like, you'd be forgiven for missing it. Mm-hmm. Do you have a little bit of work to do there on that? Um, and I will note that the Livingston House and Barn and Drew's and Gleeshan, as far as I know, were not built by Métis people, but stylistically, they're indistinguishable. Cool. If there's ways that we can work on bringing the Métis history out throughout the entire park, where, where would you like to see that go? Um, I think there are um, stories to be told. Um, the ranch house is one place because a lot of Métis uh, in the early 1900s worked as farmers, ranchers, or agricultural laborers. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's a place where we could potentially talk about that. I know the ranch house also has some very distinctly Métis architect, or not architecture, uh, artifacts on its second floor. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's also a conversation point. Um, but even if the, the home was uh, a non-Indigenous household, the McKays did have uh, hired help. And it's not impossible that that came from that community. Mm -hmm. uh, Discovery Ridge is another place where there's some potential as a lot of uh, Métis, again, in the early 20th century, found uh, work in uh, the resource sector, uh, logging and mining in particular. And on a more personal level, even the grain elevator is somewhere where I could see there being some, uh, I know in point of fact, in the, the 40s, one of my great grandpas actually ran a, a grain elevator by Stetler. I mean, it's almost, I think it has to be approached with like a, a dense view that is to not necessarily incorporate those narratives with an explicit othering gaze, but view them as a layered history where you, you will and do and did encounter Indigenous people in unexpected places. We've had conversations about, about, uh, about Black history, and our friend Cheryl Fogo calls it adjacent, adjacent history to what is happening, an implied history that, uh, you know, you would have seen these people because they were in such large numbers, as you say, right? Yeah, and, and, but the interesting thing with Métis, uh, I think, is that this is a problem both historically and today. People without the right toolkit or who don't really know what Métis spaces or places or people look like could be forgiven for seeing it and not cognizing it. The Livingston House is a textbook example of that. Unless the interpreter explicitly states that it was a Métis household, guests frequently read it as, you know, the pioneer settler, 
which, mm-hmm. um, by the way, is a word with a lot to unpack around it. Matt, uh, we appreciate you uh, coming on. I find it fa- fascinating that uh, that the Métis were in uh, at that time before the the, uh, the railroad and then after, and how the demographics changed. It's a really interesting conversation. Yeah, yeah and what I find most interesting about it is that I have only once or twice read so much as read that suggestion in literature on Calgary. Wow. I literally had to go to the primary record, go through the archives and enumerate everyone I could find in Calgary, figure out where they were from to figure this out. Oh, that's amazing. Well, thank you so much for sharing your work with us. Gladly. And thank you so much for having me on. Thanks, Matt. Thanks. Thanks.